you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where fashion sits Putting on the Ritz Different types who wear a day coat Pants with stripes and All right, we are back. Uh, talked was it on last week's show or the week before? I'm not sure. About an interesting article in Scientific American about some deep sea vents with different chemistry. <laughs> and before your eyes start glazing over, let me see if I can explain why this is actually a very cool news item. Turns out in going through the pile of things that didn't make previous shows, I realized that they had talked about this very story in New Scientist. They did so on October 17th. Although it's a good article in Scientific American, as is all too often the case, it's a better article in New Scientist. The British publication explains in better detail how it is that these deep-sea vents really could be one of the secrets to the fact that there is life on Earth and has some interesting things to say about how there may be life on other planets. As the article explains, one of the keys driving life, all forms of life on Earth, is the fact that there are gradients across membranes. You may pile up a bunch of hydrogen ions on one side of a membrane and use that to power various biochemical processes. Apparently many years ago, British researcher Peter Mitchell, described as an eccentric figure who worked out of his own lab in a restored manor house in Cornwall, funding his research in part by a herd of dairy cows, had some ideas about, uh, about the most basic process of life and how it gets its energy that seemed ridiculous to fellow biologists. Mitchell was largely vindicated, however, when he won the Nobel Prize in 1978. And it, it turns out these deep-sea vents, discovered fairly recently, fulfill a lot of predictions that Peter Mitchell made. Geochemist Mike Russell of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who I believe is one of the authors of the article in Scientific American, said, Peter Mitchell's ideas were about how cells were organized in space, and cellular energy generation is a feature of that. The problem is that most ideas on the origin of life lacked both spatial organization and a supply of energy to drive growth. Enter the deep sea vents. Says the article from the early 1990s, Russell had been exploring the possibilities of a very particular kind of hydrothermal vent called an alkaline vent. At the time, it was known only from remnants found in ancient rocks. Turns out the chemical reactions on this certain type of rock produced hydrogen and a lot of organic compounds, as we talked about uh, previously. When he discovered active vents in the year 2000 that uh, resembled these, these fossils, well, people got excited. They were even more excited when they found the hydrogen, the methane, and the hydrocarbons present. And even more excited when they found out that there was uh, micro-compartments in these rocks that provided the kind of scaffolding which cells would need to form around. Add to the mix, there's some iron-sulfur compounds that apparently are related to what the most primitive forms of life on Earth use in chemical processes. When you start looking at what all this means, well, according to the magazine, the picture painted by Russell is striking indeed. The last common ancestor of all life was not a free-living cell at all, but a porous rock riddled with bubbly iron-sulfur membranes that catalyze primordial biochemical reactions. Powered by hydrogen and proton gradients, this natural flow reactor filled up with organic chemicals, giving rise to proto-life that eventually broke out as the first living cells. This is far from being proven, but it's pretty interesting stuff. What I find interesting about this is that some of the uh, 
The minerals they're talking about are present in meteorites. And since that's what formed our solar system, it seems that uh, the possibility that we might find life of some sort on Jupiter's moon Europa or on even other locations in the solar system has been ratcheted up a notch. When it comes to science, we're living in some exciting times. There's some excitement uh, mixed with disappointment uh, on the planet Mars, <laughs> at least as seen through uh, the good folks in Pasadena monitoring the Spirit and Opportunity rovers on the Martian surface. Spirit just passed its sixth year anniversary on the Martian surface. It landed on January 3rd, 2004. The Opportunity rover seems to be the one that's had all the luck, however. Uh, Spirit at present has a bum wheel and maybe developing a second bum wheel and maybe in the process of being converted from a Martian rover to a Martian lander. But all is not yet lost. There's some pretty bright people down there at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory trying to free the little robot, and they may succeed. Should uh, the Spirit the rover become immobile, it can still snap pictures of its surroundings and send data back to Earth. And the Opportunity rover, of course, is still moving and grooving. And in a segue, we don't get to say all that often. Meanwhile, on the planet Venus, the orbiter of the European Space Agency uh, a while back showed that uh, some of the highlands on uh, Earth's twin sister planet may well be composed of granite rock. Granite forms on the Earth only when volcanic rocks are pulled beneath ocean floors by continental drift and then return to the surface. This implies that... Uh, Venus uh, not only at one time had plate tectonics operational, but also had to have had oceans on its surface. At some point in the past, the climate on Venus did turn south a bit. Currently, it endures 800-degree temperatures and sulfuric acid rain, which certainly does provide kind of a worst-case scenario to uh, our current discussions on global warming. And scientists this last year came across some came across some some pretty scary suggestions from uh, ancient rocks. About 250 million years ago on Earth, uh, there was what's called the Great Dying, the end of the Permian period. 70% of the species found on land were wiped out. 95% of the species found in our oceans were wiped out. Scientists have long known that there was there were huge volcanic eruptions out in Siberia seem to coincide with this mass extinction, but uh, current evidence suggests that uh, one of the key ingredients in this disaster may have been that the magma came in contact with vast seams of coal. The solidified magma, which dates back to that era, uh, occurs in an area where coal is also abundant. Speculation, therefore, is that the heat of this uh, hot rock could have baked many billions of tons of CO2 out of the coal over a geologically brief period of a few thousand years. Some estimates are that this sort of activity might have put as much CO2 in the atmosphere as 1,500 or 2,000 years worth of industrialization uh, will do at our current rate. Oddly enough, it may not have been necessarily global warming that caused all the extinctions. Researchers Norman Sleep and Darcy Ogden of Stanford think the trigger for the great dying may have been swifter and more terrifying. They point out that magma encountering oil and tar-soaked coal underground could melt it, producing highly combustible material. This molten mixture would be light enough to rise quickly to the surface where it would burn explosively on contact with oxygen in the air. 
This could have blasted dust and ash into the stratosphere and released huge quantities of CO2. All this dust injected into the stratosphere could have caused global cooling. Or the climate might have swung between heating and cooling as the, the effect of the CO2 was countered by the dust and vice versa. That's the part I like about science. Uh, the predictions made by such a scenario would be that if you go out into Siberia's volcanic deposits and look for what a burning mixture of coal and magma would have done, uh, it's expected that the carbon in the coal would have stripped oxygen from the iron oxide in the magma, leaving behind particles of iron. Thus, Sleep and uh, Ogden presented uh, this uh, theory at a meeting, a geological meeting, to get people to go out and look at those rocks, which no doubt people will do. It's amazing how, as the years go by, our view of, of so many things uh, that interrelate, geology, biology, astronomy, all intermix. Speaking of iron and oxygen... Uh, It's thought that about 4 billion years ago here on Earth, our primordial oceans were saturated with CO2, which made them quite acidic, and that uh, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Under these conditions, iron would dissolve readily. So presumably if uh, people came in a flying saucer from Alpha Centauri to check out the Earth 4 billion years ago, the seas would have been green and absolutely filled with iron. It was as life developed and oxygen got produced that all over the world, the iron oxide precipitated out of the Earth's oceans. And indeed, wherever you go in the Earth, these these huge, what are are called banded iron formations, reveal that, uh, well, a lot of iron got uh, precipitated out of the oceans. And of course, it was only when the iron was all gone could the oxygen then start building up in the atmosphere, which is a nice thing for you and me. And very much in keeping with the kind of stuff we're talking about uh, was this news item. Listed in Discover Magazine as the 85th biggest science story of 2009. The the magazine noted that uh, in June, in Science Magazine, paleo-oceanographer Burble Hernish, and I hope I pronounced that right, and colleagues at Columbia University, examined the remnants of plankton. In this case, foraminifera plankton, which are buried under the seafloor off the coast of Africa. And they note that this plankton incorporates different forms of boron in their shells depending on the seawater's acidity. And the acidity gives you an idea of how much CO2 was in the atmosphere. What they discovered was that it appears that atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have been pretty stable over the last 2.1 million years. The research showed that CO2 fluctuated with variations in local temperature, with higher levels corresponding to warmer eras. But despite major shifts in climate uh, over the period that were stu- was studied here, the last two million years, the overall concentrations of CO2 remained remarkably constant, which makes today's sky-high readings look even more worrisome. This preliminary research seems to indicate that we've knocked things out of whack further than they've been for at least the last two million years. The next step in the science is to go... Uh, digging deep into a cores below the sea floor where plankton have been piling up for the it's estimated 100 million years. So it'd be nice to know what the last 100 million years uh, worth of evidence can tell us about CO2 levels. Not that this is going to convince anyone over at Fox News. By the way, our reports some time ago that Discover Magazine was now a worthless rag apparently were premature. They appear to have made a pretty solid comeback of late. In fact, the current issue, which talks about the 100 discoveries that are changing the world, uh, I was curious to note, listed as number one 
the fact that vaccine phobia has become a public health threat, said the magazine. The question will not go away. Do vaccines cause autism? Some 1 million to 1.5 million adults and children in the U.S. have received autism diagnoses, and there's no clear insight into its causes. What surprises many scientists is that their findings against a vaccine connection keep failing to quell the debate, giving the anti-vaccine movement the potential to become a genuine public health problem. In February, the U.S. Court of Federal Claims attempted to provide some clarity ruling that a widely used vaccine and a vaccine preservative, both targets of concern over the past decade, do not cause autism spectrum disorders. The decision put a stamp of approval on what multiple peer-reviewed studies have concluded for years. The MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and the mercury additive thimerosal, which was removed from nearly all vaccines by 2001, are not responsible for the rise in autism diagnoses. Dr. Dean Adell has talked about this many times on his uh, radio program. If we stop vaccinating people, <laughs> this is going to be hell to pay, ladies and gentlemen. And speaking of autism, here's a story I like from Sacramento Bee, January 4th, Dateline Chicago. An expert panel says there's no rigorous evidence that digestive problems are more common in children with autism compared with other children, or that special diets work, contrary to claims by celebrities and vaccine naysayers. The picture with the article is captioned, Actress Jenny McCarthy promotes diets in her book about treatment for her autistic son. Experts say there's no rigorous evidence that special diets work. Former Playboy centerfold Jenny McCarthy apparently has a bestseller titled Louder Than Words, in which she details her search for treatments for her son's autism. Article notes that nearly one in five of children with autism are on special diets, according to a project that tracks what treatments parents are trying. Most of them were on diets that eliminate gluten, found in many grains, or casein, a protein in milk, or both. We've, quest- we've questioned on this program in the past whether the, uh, the huge national surge in autism diagnosis doesn't say more about psychiatrists than it does about the children of America. Article last November 3rd in the New York Times by Claudia Wallace noted that Asperger's syndrome is one of the most intriguing labels in psychiatry. Children with Asperger's syndrome, a mild form of autism, are socially awkward and often physically clumsy. But many are verbal prodigies, speaking in complex sentences at early ages, reading newspapers fluently by age five or six, and acquiring experience in some preferred topic, be they stegosaurs, clipper ships, interstate highways, etc., that will astonish adults and bore their playmates to tears. Noted the article, in recent years, this once obscure diagnosis has become increasingly common. Much of the growing prevalence of autism, which affects about 1% of American children, according to federal data, can be attributed to Asperger's and other mild forms of the disorder. Notes the article, although it became an official part of the medical lexicon only in 1994, the experts who are revising psychiatry's diagnostic manual have proposed eliminating it from the new edition due out in 2012. Article notes that if these experts have their way, Asperger's syndrome and another mild form of autism, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, or PDD-NOS, will be... (laughs) I'm I'm just reporting it as it's written here, folks will be folded into a single broad diagnosis. 
autism spectrum disorder, a category that encompasses autism's entire range or spectrum from high-functioning to profoundly disabling. There are some problems here, as we pointed out on this program before. According to Catherine Lord, director of the Autism and Communication Disorder Centers at the University of Michigan, nobody's been able to show consistent differences between what clinicians diagnose as Asperger's syndrome and what they diagnose as mild autistic disorder. Asperger's means a lot of different things to different people. It's confusing and not terribly useful. The article notes, however, that the Asperger's diagnosis is used by health insurers, researchers, state agencies, and schools, not to, not to mention people with the disorder, many of whom proudly call themselves Aspies. I don't know, it appears to this correspondent that this is something of a fad diagnosis. And, you know, fads shouldn't have a big role in medicine. Of course they do, as they do in everything else. But a disease that became part of the medical lexicon in 1994 only to disappear by 2012. Well, if that isn't a fad, what is? Anyway, final brief medical item for this, uh, this segment today. Good news from South Africa. In a dramatic break with his predecessor's policies, the new South African president, Jacob Zuma, said a few weeks ago that his country would treat all HIV-positive babies with AIDS drugs. Imagine that. President Zuma, in a speech on World AIDS Day, said, let, let there be no more shame, no more blame, no more discrimination, and no more stigma. Let the politicization and endless debates about HIV and AIDS stop. As we reported on this program, South Africa's previous president, Thabo Mbeki, denied that AIDS was caused by the HIV virus and actively discouraged the use of antiretroviral drugs, recommending instead garlic and other herbal remedies. More than 10% of South Africa's population has HIV. It's the highest rate in the world. We hope that uh, the actual use of appropriate drugs will help the situation over there. I think we need to take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned.